Welcome to the Safeguarding Podcast. In each episode, we'll discuss a different safeguarding topic with a range of expert speakers. Please be aware some of this content is sensitive and listener discretion is advised. Hello, good afternoon and a very warm welcome to this afternoon's webinar. My name is Natasha Lawrence and I'm the Head of Safeguarding at the Safeguarding Company. Um, I want to extend a very warm welcome to our lovely guest today, Matilda Grenet, um, and hope that you're all able to join us this afternoon quite flawlessly. If you do have any issues down to the bottom left hand side of the screen on the bottom bar there is a help button that should be able to assist you and looking over to the right there is also a question function as well. So please feel free to make any comments. We love hearing from you and if we have the time uh, and if I'm able to, I will feed your questions into today's session. Uh, any questions that we don't get time to answer, I will uh, make sure that we answer those questions and send them out afterwards. Um, so Matilda, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Um, please introduce yourself and tell us all about yourself. Thank you very much, uh, Natasha. I'm very excited to be with all of you uh, this afternoon. Uh, my name is Mathilde Grenet. I'm originally from um, Paris, France, but I'm now based in Lausanne, Switzerland. I'm a safe sports specialist, and I am the founder and CEO of the safeguarding consultant firm Engard, whose mission is to work with sporting organizations to make their ecosystem safer for everyone, especially children. And I created Engard because I was groomed and sexually abused by my coach during two years. And I later on realized that not enough was done at the club and at the federation level to prevent abuse from happening. I also learned so much from going through an eight-year legal battle against this coach. And he was sentenced to 18 years of jail in January 2021. I'm also a founding member of the French association Rebound, which works closely with the French Tennis Federation on fighting sexual violence in French tennis. And I am a member of the Pool of International Experts on Safe Sport at the Council of Europe. I've been working in the Olympic movement for the past 10 years. And with Engard, I want to share the learnings that I've acquired through my personal battle. I want to make sports safer for children. I'm the first person convinced of the multiple benefits that playing sport can have for children if it's done in a safe way. With Engard, I currently work um, with FIFA and European Athletics on their safeguarding programs and um, more um, specifically on supporting their member federation in establishing their own safeguarding policies and procedures. Very honored to be on the safeguarding webinar today. Thank you. Um, your story is inspiring and um, you bring such value to these organisations that uh, you're working with. Um, you spoke about working with their policies and practices. Um, where have you identified maybe the most learning for these organisations? What I'm trying to get at is obviously you're, you're working with these organisations. Where, where are the risks? Where are the areas where they need to sort of put in the resources to improve their standards? The major risk um, for sports organization is, first of all, uh, the risk of reputational damage. We've seen, for example, with the Larry Nassar case, the national team doctor who abused hundreds of gymnasts, uh, the impact this case had on, on USA Gymnastics. 
they lost all of their sponsors. They even had to file for bankruptcy in uh, 2018. And we know that now sponsors are much more regarding uh, in terms of what is happening uh, in uh, corporate social responsibility matters and um, in, in human rights um, matters. Um, we see also um, more and more senior leaders being accused of not dealing with safeguarding cases in, in the right way and having to resign. There are major legal risks for sporting organization um, to, to face legal action. Um, victims from cases of harassment and abuse can press legal charges and, and seek for compensation for the damages they have suffered. I've read recently that UK Athletics, for example, spent £600,000 on handling safeguarding cases and is now facing great difficulty. The main mission of sport organization is to grow the sport, whether at the national level or, the, or at the international um, level. If participants are, uh, suffer violence, if they don't have a good experience in sport, there is a chance that they leave sports. And nowadays, the entertainment industry is extremely competitive. So it is critical that sport organization address this issue. Um, and the, and the, the other main risk uh, I see now uh, is the fact that, um, especially in, in places like the UK uh, that are more advanced uh, in safeguarding, um, is the fact that more investment on safeguarding is done at the elite level, but um, uh, almost no investment is, is done for the grassroots level and the community level. And we know from research that most cases of harassment and abuse happen at this community level, at the club level. I hope this answers your question, sorry. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Um, yes, please forgive me, my fault. I skipped a question, didn't I, Matilda? So I've... I've um, yes. Yes. Um, so yes, let's move on to... If we can, if we can. So, what does the current safeguarding landscape look like in sport in your world? Yes. Yeah, so, so, we've seen uh, um, <clears throat> recently in the last ten years uh, an explosion of high-profile cases of harassment and abuse cases in sports, and we know from research that these high-profile cases are just the tip of the iceberg. We know, for example, from the Council of Europe that one in five children in Europe are victims of some form of sexual violence. The Larina Sa case that I've just mentioned earlier was one of the most shocking, traumatic case of harassment and abuse that we've seen recently. And um, it led the US Congress to legislate and to create the US Center for Safe Sports in 2017. In the UK as well, you've had your share of um, revelations. In football, with the disclosure from Andy Woodward saying that he had been sexually abused by his coach as a very small child in his football club, which then pushed hundreds of former players to come out and say they had also been uh, a victim of sexual abuse. This led uh, the, the English FA to commission an independent review, the Clive Sheldon um, QC review, which pointed out several malfunctions and a real lack of safeguarding um, policies and procedures. And, 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 and these reviews have happened in different sports in the UK. I think they are really important. 
we've seen them also happening a little bit in Canada and in the US, maybe in Australia as well. So, so I think it's a very uh, Anglo-Saxon, a very British thing, and it's really lacking in other parts of the world. So I think we can really learn in other parts of the world from these, these reviews, which I think are really um, a transparent way to do things and, and a, a brave way in a way to, to do things. So, um, so, so these, these reviews also, uh, they really contributed to a safeguarding overhaul in, in the UK. They, they made recommendations. But for me, I think this, uh, this wasn't the only uh, reason why the, the UK is so much uh, ahead in terms of safeguarding. I think a critical thing, um, a key measure was the fact that the British government really stepped in and made it mandatory for um, British national governing bodies to implement uh, safeguarding policy and procedures in order to be eligible for funding through UK Sport and Sport England. So I think for me, this was a, a really critical measure. And, uh, um, and, and what they did is that they didn't say, you need to do this and that, uh, otherwise we will cut your funding. They also... They also uh, provide support, uh, Sport England and UK Sport. They work with expert agencies such as the Child Protection in Sport Unit and the Ancraft Trust um, to, to provide safeguarding guidance and resources for sport organization. So we can say that the UK are very much pioneers when it comes to safeguarding. Uh, it doesn't mean that the issue of harassment and abuse uh, in the UK is solved, but uh, because we see every day uh, a new case uh, coming out and people speaking out. But I think in a way it's, it's not a good, good thing because of course uh, there were some victims involved, but it's, it's a good thing in the sense that people are uh, starting to really speak out, which means that the culture is slowly changing. Um, from, the, from a more global perspective, safeguarding is also very much on top of the agenda of the International Olympic Committee and FIFA. Uh, <clears throat> they have developed safeguarding policies and guidelines to set minimum standards for their member federation to follow. And they are working hard on implementing uh, these standards and providing education. The IOC is now asking their National uh, Olympic Committee and international federation to provide a dedicated safeguarding officer. They have launched in 2021 a new course, um, the IOC Certificate Safeguarding Officer in Sport to train these officers. I've just finished this course, I've just been certified. It's, it's already a, a great resource. They've announced, uh, they've also announced recently a 10 million fund to strengthen safe sports. And they have created a working group to decide um, how, how to allocate the money. The IOC is of the view that it is, it is a global problem with local solutions. So they really want to invest the money into these local solutions. FIFA has a slightly different approach. They've been very vocal recently about creating um, an international safe sport entity. Also, after they had to deal with very difficult cases, and they felt like um, at the international federation level, there was not really uh, the necessary expertise or resource to deal with difficult cases of harassment and abuse. So they, they, they decided to create uh, this international safe sport entity and, and to 
um, see if this project could be viable. They consulted with different groups, with international federation, with legal experts, with NGOs, and with a group of survivors. I was involved uh, in this consultation as part of the group of survivors. And our main point as survivor was really um, uh, to say that um, a key point for this entity would be to be trauma-informed and victim-centered. Because we know in some of the recent cases, the high-profile cases that have happened in, in Afghanistan, in Haiti, that the victims were um, not protected. They faced retaliation. They often felt re-traumatized and betrayed by the sport organization. So we were very vocal about this. Um, May I ask, did that form part of the training you've just completed, that being trauma-informed? Yes, uh, there were several uh, modules about, about this new, I think it's, it's quite a new um, area of work for safeguarding that, that is coming from the, the medical um, world. And, um, and it's, it's a very important point uh, that sports organizations have to keep in mind when they design their safeguarding policies and procedures to put themselves in the shoes of, uh, of survivors, of victims, when, when they do that. Mm. I think that's uh, another, really... yeah, sorry. I was just saying, I think that's a really important point that you've just made about not re-traumatizing any, any um, adult survivors or, or victims at the time when going through this process. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yes, no, sorry. That's, that's the point. Be very careful about not re-traumatizing and, and be attentive to the, the, the type of support that a victim would need. This can be really critical and can really contribute to how a victim or a survivor heal you know, from the trauma they have suffered. Mm. So there are little things that can be done at the federation level to, to um, you know, lower, uh, to lower the, the trauma um, that has been suffered. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and the other point I wanted to mention regard, regarding the global landscape is, the, the, is that we are seeing a lot of countries that are creating these uh, safe sport entities. As I've mentioned, the US with the US Center for Safe Sports, um, but we've seen a, a few European countries doing that, Switzerland, Belgium, Netherlands. Um, and, and, and I think this is a great, um, this is a very positive step, uh, but it is not the unique solution. Um, we see that these entities are often uh, struggling with um, resources, that some of them were created more to deal with uh, anti-doping and match-fixing issues and not necessarily with safeguarding um, cases. So, so that's that's really a work in progress, um, and I think there needs to the, the key point uh, with this uh, international safeguarding landscape is is a need for collaboration and and a need for every actor from the club to the the international Olympic committee to play their part. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and if I may ask. Uh, about the, you mentioned about the culture and safeguarding culture, and it's something that we talk a lot about in, in our training here at the Safeguarding Company. It, it's something that we've delved into quite a bit. For you, in your opinion, Matilda, what, what would a good self safeguarding culture in sport look like? A, a good safeguarding um, culture? Sorry, I didn't hear your last word. Yes, yeah, sorry, for you, in your opinion, what would a good positive safeguarding culture in sport look like? Yeah, I think uh, the key here is that um, 
we need to stop with this familiarity that exists uh, in the sport world and that it doesn't exist, for example, in the education system. Um, so people um, need to be much more respectful. Um, coaches and, and people working with children need to understand that this is not appropriate, for example, to offer a, a car ride to, to their athletes, something that a, a teacher, for example, would not, would not do. Um, or, um, you know, regarding communication, like a, a teacher, for example, would never text um, their pupil after class. And that's something that a coach does uh, on a daily basis. So, um, so yeah, there needs to be a, a real shift, I think, in, in the sport culture. And, and we need to stop with this familiarity. Um, safeguarding uh, needs to become the, the normal day-to-day -day of, of sport organization. I think now... Too many organizations think they have to tick the box by, you know, having a policy, but they need to understand that um, safeguarding efforts need to be consistent, need to happen uh, all the time, every year, that safeguarding policies and procedures need to be reviewed and, and assessed also regularly. I think that's a really important point that it isn't just a tick box exercise and that the, the culture and the practice permeates down from the top leadership down across all organizations. And I think it's fair to say that that is the same in education as well, that that needs to come from the top and permeate through everything that is done with regards to that safeguarding culture and those practices. Um, a safeguarding lead, whether in education or a sporting organization can be quite an isolated role. Um, who, who in your world can safeguarding leads turn to for maybe supervision, support, etc., advice? Yeah, no, this is um, this is this is very true, and I think as a safeguarding officer, I, I do this role for European Athletics, and, and this position can be quite lonely. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that um, sport organizations need to be careful not to um, separate their organization too much from the safeguarding officer role. Um, so the safeguarding officer really needs to have the right supervision and to be held accountable also for what they do. But I think for them, it's critical to build kind of a support network of organization and people they can call and talk to when they have a case and, and they are not sure how to deal with it. So I think in the UK, you have great um, uh, um, great uh, organizations uh, like the, the, the CPSU I mentioned earlier, protection in sport units that provide all kinds of training resources and, um, for sport organization. For the adults, you have the Ancraft Trust um, and for the, the, the more international audience, I would say that um, there are not too many resources, but uh, there is the International Safeguards for Children in Sports um, that was developed by a coalition between UNICEF and different sport organizations. They provide um, with a very useful framework um, with eight safeguards to make uh, sport environments safe for children. They have a great website with different tools. Uh, um, uh, videos um, accessible in, in, I think, 12 different languages. Um, FIFA also developed um, uh, a great um, great course, a FIFA Garden course, um, to support um, their member association safeguarding officers and, and um, member association um, federations in establishing their own safeguarding policy and procedures. This course is available in English, French, and Spanish, and now it's being adapted uh, to a wider sport audience. Um, I know that the level one is, is available. 
the IOC also has uh, several resources. They have a platform, the 365 platform uh, for athletes, where also they provide e-learning on safeguarding um, and, um, and and interesting resources. They have a, they published a, a mental um, health uh, in elite athlete guide in, in 2021. Um, there is the course that I've just mentioned for safeguarding officer. Um, and, and I was go going to mention also the Council of Europe, uh, which I, I'm a member of, of a group of experts there. They have uh, also good safeguarding resources on their websites, um, especially the ones that they developed for the uh, Start to Talk campaign. Um, so, so these are the, you know, the, the places where I, I would turn to uh, for information or, or call, you know, fellow uh, safeguarding officers. Um, um, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's and, and of course, uh, another one that I didn't mention is, um, is, is um, local law enforcement. I know that's how the safeguarding company was created, you know, out of this collaboration between the education system and local law enforcement. That's really important also to have um, your contact with your local law enforcement child protection agency that you can you can reach out to and and talk to um, at any point. Thank you. And for our listeners, we can supply those links, some of those links that Matilda's just mentioned, um, following on from today's webinar. Um, uh, please ask any questions in the box on the right hand side. I will post them to oh we've just got a question uh come in and let me just see whether i can just bring the screen down so i can read the whole question because it's quite a long question right okay i'm going to read this one out so um hi matilda one issue i have as a sports psychology how to support athletes who have been abused in the process of denouncing to the sports integrity agency as coaches and sports directors tend to recognize who the complaint is coming from despite anonymous treatment, what are the measures you would suggest to ensure athletes are safe in denouncing and not re-traumatized and marginalized for the sheer fact of having a denounced case? Yes, uh, no, that this is very common when, when an athlete speaks out, say that they have been abused, then they get ostracized in their sports um, environments. So, so, so in a case like this, it's extremely important to see um, if you can provide um, uh, a, a different um, training setup for the athletes. So, to, so see um, if they can train maybe some, somewhere else for a while. Uh, of course, different coach, uh, different teammates, um, provide them with so your you said so Matthias says that he is a sports psychologist. Of course, provide them with with um, psychological support. Signpost them to to uh, uh, different resources that that could be um, helpful for them. And um, yeah, that's these are the main um, advice I would. I'm just trying to reread the question again. Yeah, and and and, and always. Uh, uh, tell them, you know, that um, they they are being believed, that they are safe, that they've done the right thing, that uh, you know that, that it's not their fault what happened to them. So, mm. thank you. Um, going back, you mentioned about uh, 
things that we do do well in this country, and that is, uh, you mentioned the Sheldon Report, obviously our serious case reviews. Uh, we do uh, reflect on, on the case, look at what's happened, look at how we can move forward uh, and improve the system. So thinking about our UK education system, Matilda, what do you think that the education system in this country does well and that what aspects of that could be adopted within um, the sporting organisations and bodies? Yeah, so, so, so as I said earlier, I think uh, safeguarding needs to become a little bit the new norm. Um, safeguarding is a normal day-to-day -day of, of every school, I think, in the UK. And, and that's, that needs to, to happen in, in sports. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, sport organisations really need to understand that safeguarding training um, has to become systematic. It has to, to happen very consistently every year. Safeguarding policies have to be uh, regularly reviewed and adapted. And um, I think the UK um, education system, uh, they, do, uh, they, they do a lot of things very well. I think they have very robust safeguarding policies and, and, and procedure cover, covering all forms of non-accidental violence, including uh, bullying and, and online safety, which are uh, extremely uh, common nowadays with, um, you know, social media. They uh, also have implemented very robust um, vetting process, background check and criminal record check. And I think this is happening also in the sports, uh, in sport in the UK, but in many parts of the world, this is not a standard practice to, to, to even conduct a background check, to call so in my case, my coach, he they had never checked uh, uh, his background. They had never called his previous employer. If they had done it, they would have realized that he didn't have the qualification he claimed he had. So just doing a background check is is the you know the minimum. Hmm. Um, I think in the in the, the the UK education system, they spend a lot of time and energy on on educating educating the teachers, the staff about how to recognize the sign and symptom of harassment and abuse, what to do when this happened, how to report it, how to support the victim. They have designated safeguarding leads in every school. This is yet to happen. I know in the UK, every club has one, but this is yet to happen in many countries where it's this, most countries, this doesn't exist. And, and I would say one thing in the UK that's much better in at least than, than, than in France, uh, and in, I think in many countries that... I think there is a great emphasis in, in uh, British school on on um, on PSHE, personal social health and economic education for kids. Uh, they are really educated from a very young age on, on questions such as healthy relationship, online safety, consent. I think this is really critical, this education piece. Um, I have a, a, my son uh, who is uh, two uh, and a half years old. He's half British and he watches the, the CBBs. And I see even in the CBBs that a lot of attention is given to uh, questions of inclusion, uh, diversity, um, consent. And so, so I think this is great. And the sport organization have a role to play in, in, in making this, um, this education happen, um, this PSHE education it's it's uh, it's very important, um, and I would say, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think the collaboration with uh, 
external entities such as law enforcement agency, child protection agency. I think it's really important because sport organizations don't have all the expertise to, to know how to deal with these cases. So they need to do that. And I think the school, uh, the schools and the education system in the UK, they do that well. Uh, and that's how they can safeguard uh, children efficiently. Mm. And I often, yeah, yeah, that, that's what I was going to say, uh, the, the parallel between the education system and the sports system. I, I try to make it all the time when I when I speak to, to federation and I say it's not normal, you know, that the coach uh, shares a bedroom uh, with an athlete on a competition. This should not happen. This would not happen in a school when they go on a, on a, on a camp. Mm. Um, and and so, so I think we have a lot of learnings to take from what's happening in, in the the education world. Mm. I think there's a, a, a comment just come in as well that this this practice that we're talking about today also needs to be extended to dance and theatre clubs uh, and, and other unregulated and unsupported uh, arts groups. So I think that's a really valid point. Thank you for that. Um, and let me just have a look at the questions before we go on. We've got another one here. Um, I'll read out. So um, this one is from Gemma. I'm a safeguarding officer in the UK for local county uh, FA. I'm developing our CPD program for welfare officers. I wondered if you are aware of any organizations that can, pro can provide education on safeguarding and sports topics through guest speakers. Thank you, very interesting to listen to. Thank you very much, Gemma. Thank you very much, um, Gemma, for this question. Let me reread it uh, quickly. Um, yes, I mean, uh, apart from the ones I, I mentioned, uh, you know, the programs from uh, you have Safe Sport International, that is a charity also based in, in the UK. They, are, they were one of the main organizations that pushed for the creation of the international um, uh, safeguard for children in sports uh, and, and the initiatives that have been um, um, created by FIFA and by the IOC. I'm, I'm, I'm unfortunately not aware of other um, organization, uh, but uh, if myself with Engard, I can help you uh, in any way, I'm happy to, to take uh, this conversation um, outside of this webinar. Thank you. Thank you, Matilda. Yeah, I think the, the unregulated training standard is something certainly I'm very passionate about here at the Safeguarding Company and raising those standards around safeguarding training, whether that's in education and sporting organisations. Um, and also coming to our, one of our core products at the Safeguarding Company, which is uh, my concern, which is our um, case management system. Uh, so, Matilda, you, you spoke about capturing these disclosures, capturing the... Um, uh, the ongoing actions around what is happening, how you're supporting the uh, the um, individuals in their disclosures. So in education, we're well embedded in in my concern within schools and this case, man case management system. Do you think that would translate well into sporting organisations having a similar system to support their case management and their capturing of low-level concerns right through to the more serious and complex? Yes, no, I mean, I think it's a great tool, of course. I would say that for me, my concern, uh, the case management software is a little bit the icing on the cake. Um, and I think this first, uh, the education work needs to be done. So people need to be educated about the existence of such a, a platform. Um, they need to understand what is a safeguarding incident, what is a case of harassment and abuse, how they can report it, what will happen when they report it. I think this education 
is is really often missing in I see some some federation they do have a platform but nobody uh, knows about it so I think that's 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 a very important step is to educate people about it how to use it but my concern is a great uh, tool it's it's very easy to report uh, a safeguarding incident um, and it enables um, the safeguarding lead um, the organization to to record everything in a safe centralized systematic and co and consistent way uh, which is which is a difficult exercise when you don't have such a, a, a software then you know you have to be careful with data protection confidentiality how you save information so it it, it will really facilitate uh, the work of of safeguarding officers in in, in sports uh, um, governing bodies I think it, it, it can help also um, understand the profile of, of the victim of the perpetrators and then inform um, future training and um, and can help also in identifying like trends uh, and, and and potentially intervene um, earlier uh, before there are more serious issues yes thank you um sorry if i'm missing any questions but i've just spotted another one and we might be jumping back and forth a bit here matilda have you seen the, the question that's come in from from madeline how would you encourage advise ngbs to ensure their safeguarding policy becomes part of their culture particularly in relation to working with volunteer coaches who are time restricted and maybe don't see the importance of safeguarding and i think this goes back to your point that you mentioned about these policies not being just in place for a tick box exercise, have they actually been embedded across the whole area of the organization, including the volunteers, coaches, etc.? Yes, no, that's that's the point. Uh, it's um, it's it's I guess it's uh, uh, the beginning to have your policy, but uh, it's completely pointless if it's not being implemented, if people are not being educated about it. I think a way to to engage well with um, volunteers and coaches is to to try to to organize a focus group with them, uh, uh, you know, on on, on on writing code of conduct. Uh, that's that's a good practice also to involve the coaches and the volunteers to to write their own um, code of conduct, and also to 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 educate them about how important it is for 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 them even to be protected, to have um, um, robust safeguarding policies and procedures, because that's not only protecting the athletes and, and the sport participants, it's protecting them, you know, from false accusation. So they need to understand that, you know, the more professional we become, you know, the safer also everybody will, will be. Mm, I think that's a really important point, right. isn't it? It's including yeah. them in the process, making them part of that policy, not just being a tick box document, but something that you're, is embedded in, in your everyday uh, actions and, and practices. Um, and I think that gives them a sense of ownership as well uh, around that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we found when we've gone into uh, schools and organizations that uh, have the policies in place and when you talk let's talk at grassroots levels uh, not even knowing where to access those policies so I think that's that's really important really involving them in, in those yeah um, let me just check the questions here I think we had another one around building trust in the process um, so yes how can athletes build trust in the process 
Yeah, how can athletes build trust? I think it's critical to to involve athletes also in this process of um, working on on establishing a safeguarding program, on developing policies. I think it's it's critical to have um, um, a working group made of athletes um, and and made of people, you know, like me, survivors who have had experience of abuse and who could can really um, tell you what needs to to change uh, to make sport safer. Yeah, thank you. So, so talking about yourself and and uh, your organisation on guard, um, what kind of things can people expect to see when they, they visit your website, and what kind of support training services can you offer? Yes, yeah, so, so at Engard, uh, we provide four main services. So the first service is safeguarding audits. We've developed a methodology to assess the level of your organization's compliance with international safeguarding best practices. And out of this assessment, we make strategic recommendation. We do safeguarding education and training. We develop bespoke educational programs and tools for your sport and your sport stakeholders. We do safeguarding risk assessment for sports uh, environment and high performance sport environments. We do, um, of course, safeguarding advocacy. Uh, we speak to your sport community to inspire them to support a safe culture and to become a safeguarding leader. Thank you. And um, the, the the importance of um, the the training, and I obviously mentioned about how passionate we are here about the quality of, of training. Uh, what what kind of training can you can you offer? Maybe individuals or organisations, and and what sort of level is that at? Yeah, I I, I really um, conduct uh, any type of training for uh, it can be for coaches for. Um, uh, federations, uh, board members. I really adapt myself. I have a full range of, of training courses available. Well, that's really fantastic to hear that. That's that's covering all bases then with regards to the training. Um, we've just had a, another question come in. Um, so um, as you shared our, your story with, you, uh, with us, Matilda, as, as a survivor, in hindsight, what are the major factors that were missing in sports organisations that allowed the unfortunate incident to take place? Um, so, yeah, I, I would say I mean, there was nothing. I mean, I really um, suffered the lack of, of safeguarding uh, policies and procedures. Um, there was absolutely nothing. If, in my club where I played, uh, Nobody knew, first of all, of what was, you know, harassment and abuse, what, what behaviors were acceptable and what behavior were not. If something happened also, we, we didn't know what to, what to do, who to call. Um, I mentioned earlier the, the vetting process, the coach that uh, was, was um, uh, coaching us. He didn't have the qualification he claimed he had. He had had bad experiences in the past uh, but he was still able to to coach uh, there and then after uh, this club he went on to another club where he abused other um, players we at the end we were four victims to come forward in the, this case um, yes so I would say the, the lack of uh, the lack of, of there was just nothing in, in in regards to, to safeguarding and child protection and 
uh, I think the education is, is really the key one and um, for the kids, uh, for the coaches, uh, for the parents, because in my case, uh, the, the bystander, what we call the bystander effect was very strong. So many adults and other parents saw that they were things that were not really, uh, you know, they, they were quite strange, but they didn't do anything. Um, and I think this is uh, very much linked to a, a lack of understanding of, you know, of, of what it is, you know, the, the grooming process, um, uh, what are the different forms of abuse and what are the symptoms. Uh, so, so I think education is, is really the, the, I would say, perhaps the number one uh, thing. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think we've had a few more questions come in. Um, so how can sport and physical activity providers improve their risk manage management within safeguarding? Um, are there any quick wins that make it easy to digest and implement as to maximise impact in snowballing the process and save volunteers invaluable time? So improving risk management uh, within safeguarding. Um, yes, I was just rereading re the question. Yeah, I think risk um, uh, management and risk assessment has to become also the normal day to day. Whenever um, you take the kids uh, to a, a tournament or to a training camp, you have to assess the risk. So you need to have a mechanism to, to do that. Um, and, and this needs to be done um, on a on a very regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. And I think again that, that, that should be included in a lot of the, the training. I think some that is something that is missing from a lot of safeguarding training, not just in sport in organizations, but in education as well, is that how do you manage that risk? And it, it's that dynamic risk mm -hmm. of an ongoing case being disclosed, and then it's obviously managing the long term the risks and the effects around that. Um, and I, yeah, I'm working actually on developing a tool for football academies on how to, to assess those risks, you know, in high performance environments. So I, I hope I, I can soon share it because uh, I think it's missing also to have practical tools that you can use to to uh, assess risk um, in sporting environments. Mm. Excellent. And uh, uh, another question, I'm not sure whether you can see that one, Matilda, what do you find are the most common misconceptions when people discuss welfare and safeguarding, i.e. some people use the words interchangeably, even though they are different? So that difference between welfare and safeguarding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah, there are a lot of misconceptions. Uh, as I said, there there still needs to be a, a lot of education work um, on all sides, um, and and there needs to be a real change of culture. And people need to understand also that you know safe safeguarding goes almost beyond um, just making sure children are not uh, abused and, and harassed in sport. You know, it's it's about also making sure their rights, I was going to, to mention that uh, earlier, uh, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, uh, which is a very important treaty, on international treaty on, on children um, children's rights. So I think that's, we need to be much more aware of that. How, how can we um, um, facilitate uh, um, um, the, 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 the children's access uh, to, to those rights 
um, how how can we fulfill their potential uh, in the best way possible? So to make sure that they become you know well uh, balanced and, and well rounded individuals. Hmm, thank you. I mean, we very much look at safeguarding as that umbrella term. Um, it, it's far reaching. Um, and, and we talk about underneath that umbrella term, obviously, the welfare, well-being of, of the child uh, and noticing those small changes in behaviour that could possibly indicate something more, more sinister. Um, so thank you very much. I can see that we are actually nearly out of time. Matilda, is there anything else you'd like to, to add before we, we wrap this up this afternoon? No, I think I'm I'm fine. I hope I've answered more or less the questions. If if there are any questions that we haven't um, looked at or missed, uh, as I said at the beginning, we will follow up on those. Um, Matilda, I want to extend a huge thank you to you today for for coming on board, for sharing your story. I think you're absolutely inspiring and uh, it's fascinating to listen to. So I hope everyone out there has enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you so much for inviting me in this great uh, webinar and um, looking forward to speaking um, to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Safeguarding Podcast. For resources and more information about our safeguarding solutions, please visit thesafeguardingcompany.com. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and feel free to rate us using whichever podcast provider you use.